Hi everyone, welcome back to Logical Bible Study, where we go through an exegesis of today's Gospel reading and Mass. So we're helping you understand the literal sense of the Gospels. We're really diving into what the words mean, what the author was trying to convey. So it's a ministry that's all about helping Catholics understand their Bibles better. Today we're starting right at the start of the Gospel of Mark. So we're looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. So here's the reading, we'll read it out. And then we'll go through it verse by verse, and I think you'll find that there's more going on in this text than what might be obvious at first. So, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah, Look, I am going to send my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare a way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. And so it was that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All Judea and all the people of Jerusalem made their way to him, and as they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, they confessed their sins. John wore a garment of camel skin, and he, com- and he lived on locusts and wild honey. In the course of his preaching, he said, Someone is following me, someone who is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to kneel down and undo the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here we are right at the start of the Gospel of Mark, and this first section right up till verse 14 of chapter 1, it's considered to be a prologue to the Gospel before Jesus starts to do anything himself, we have this prologue, which focuses on John the Baptist. So let's start at verse 1. I think you'll find there's a lot going on behind the text here. Verse 1, Mark says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. Another translation of that would be the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the words good news and gospel, it means the same thing. This is how Mark begins his gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. That's why he's written his gospel, to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Basically, his whole book, his whole gospel, is the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, even in this first phrase, there's a bit we can say here. Notice he starts it with the beginning of the good news. The fact that he starts his book with the phrase, the beginning, it's probably a reference to the book of Genesis. Remember, the book of Genesis says, in the beginning. Mark here starts his gospel with the beginning of the good news. Mark probably does that deliberately. He's probably trying to convey to his audience that he's going to talk about a new creation in his gospel, whereas the book of Genesis talks about the first creation, the gospels are about the beginning of the new creation. Matthew and John actually do basically the same thing at the start of their gospels. They also use the word beginning. And he uses the word gospel, or as we said, it can be translated good news. A more literal translation there would be joyful tidings. Joyful tidings is a good translation of the word gospel. Now, in that culture, the word gospel had a very specific meaning. When we think of the word gospel today, we automatically think of Christianity. In that culture, gospel was already a word that was used before Christianity even existed. Here's how it was used. So, in that culture, whenever a new king was placed on the throne in that part of the world, in the Roman Empire... Or if there was some sort of great military victory in one part of the empire, then a messenger would run to the towns in the empire and they would literally go from town to town proclaiming the good news that there's a new king. They would proclaim the gospel and they would say, good news, there's a new king. 
Think of that background. Well, here we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is basically the good news that Jesus is king. So the apostles, the first Christian disciples, were literally going from town to town, sharing the news that there is a new king on the throne. It's King Jesus. So I think that background of the word gospel helps us understand things a bit more. The gospels, as we have come to know them, are all telling the story of how Jesus is king and the kingdom of God has arrived on earth. Jesus himself later begins to preach. What does he say? The first thing he says, actually, in the gospel of Mark is... The kingdom of God is at hand. That's in verse 15 of chapter 1. That's Jesus' own preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. And as the gospel goes on, Jesus unpacks this more. He's going to describe just how valuable and important the good news is. And in verse 1 here, Mark says the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So notice Mark identifies up front that Jesus is the Son of God. He calls him the Christ, but also the Son of God, which is a big claim. This means that he's the one sent from God. In fact, the father himself at Jesus' baptism, the father says, this is my son, this is my beloved son. Mark says up front, this is the son of God. And as we know as Christians, he's not just the messenger of God, he's God himself. So the son of God is a word that can be understood different ways. And as Christians, we understand it to mean that he is God himself. He has come to bring the kingdom of God. This is actually a predominant title for Jesus in Mark. All through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is called the Son of God. Now, at this point, it's worth highlighting a difference between Mark and the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels all include some sort of genealogy of Jesus. Matthew and Luke have very long genealogies of Jesus, and John has the whole section about in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. So there's a kind of a a genealogy there. But Mark is the only gospel that doesn't have a genealogy of Jesus. It doesn't try to tell his readers where Jesus has come from. Rather, he goes straight into talking about the ministry of John the Baptist. That's the next thing he talks about. And then straight after that, Jesus is baptized. So we don't know anything about Jesus' infancy from the gospel of Mark. And here's what Mark says next. He quotes, he says, it is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah. So Mark is going to go on to quote from the Old Testament here to highlight the importance of John the Baptist's ministry. This is actually the only time in the entire Gospel of Mark that Mark quotes directly from the Old Testament himself. The other Gospels do it a lot, but Mark, as the Gospel author, this is the only time he quotes directly from the Old Testament. Now here he says it's from the book of it's from the prophet Isaiah. Actually, what he's about to quote here is two separate quotes that have been spliced together. So the first half is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And then the second half is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So why does Mark say it is written in the prophet Isaiah? Is this an error? Does this contradict our belief about the inerrancy of Scripture? Well, we need to think about the way that Jews in the time of Jesus talked about Scripture. It was common in that time, if you were going to cite two different passages from the Old Testament, a common way of doing that would be just to cite the main source, if you were combining two biblical texts, you would typically combine, or you would typically cite the predominant author, the one that's written the more significant text. So typically, if you combine a major prophet and a minor prophet, so if you were to combine uh, Ezekiel and Nahum, for example, if someone in that time was to combine two quotes from those two, they would probably just say it was from Ezekiel. That was just the common way of doing it. It's not that they didn't know they came from two separate books. That was just the way that they quoted it. And that's exactly what happens here. We have a major prophet, Isaiah, and a minor prophet. Uh, 
which is Malachi. And so Mark here just says it's from the prophet Isaiah. But Mark clearly perceives that both of these passages are fulfilled in John the Baptist. So he quotes them together. So here's the full quote that he quotes here. Look, I'm going to send my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Now that second half you've probably heard quite a bit because the other gospels all talk about this second half, but the first half of it you may not be that familiar with. So the first half says, look, I'm going to send my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. This seems to be taken straight from Malachi chapter three, verse one. In context there, God promises to send Elijah as a messenger to prepare the people by purifying them before the final coming of the kingdom of God. So by the time Malachi writes this, Elijah is dead. He's been dead for a long time. But Malachi, inspired by God, perceives that one day God is going to, in a sense, send Elijah back to prepare the people just before the final coming of the kingdom of God. So, and the idea, if you read that passage in context in Malachi, is that he wants to send, God wants to send Elijah to the people so that the people will be pleasing to God when the kingdom does come. So Elijah is going to kind of be a messenger to make sure everyone's ready just before the kingdom comes. There's also an implicit warning here in this passage. If you read it in context, Malachi goes on to talk about, if the Jewish leaders are not prepared to welcome this messenger, Jerusalem will be in danger. So already here we have hints that John the Baptist is in a sense Elijah, because that quote there from Malachi is about Elijah in context. Some scholars think that this first half here, look, I'm going to send my messenger before you, He will prepare your way because it's not word for word from Malachi, but it does have some similarities to Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. Some scholars think he's also combined Exodus 23 in here as well. And in context of Exodus 23, that's where God promises to send an angel, which just means messenger, before the Israelites as they travel through the wilderness. Remember that part of the Exodus where God promises to send an angel before them. Well, in this, it looks like Mark has possibly introduced that here. So if that's the case, Mark is highlighting how Jesus has come to bring a new exodus. So there's really interesting connections here. Now, also, one more thing to say about this. Notice the way that Mark phrases it. Look, I'm going to send my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. Some scholars think here that Mark is intending the your to be a reference to Jesus, as in, He's sort of reworking the prophecy so that the the text here, the prophecy, is directed towards Jesus himself. So in that case, then, Mark would be intending to teach that God has sent John the Baptist ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. And certainly that's the teaching. But there's a question here of who does Mark think the prophecy is directed to? Does he think it's directed to the Jews in the time of Jesus? And that certainly fits. Or does he think it's directed to Jesus specifically? It's interesting. Then we get to the next section, which is this. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make his paths straight. So this is the second half of the quote. This is taken straight from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And in the original context there, it refers to getting ready for the coming of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, the Lord is God. So in the original context, this is a passage about preparing your way, getting ready for the coming of God as he brings the people back from exile. So from this, it could be that Mark clearly understands that if this prophecy applies to Jesus, prepare a way for the Lord, well, in the Old Testament, Lord means God. So perhaps Mark here intends 
to teach that Jesus is God himself, and that when Jesus arrives on the scene, it is the coming of God himself in human flesh. Now, by the time of Jesus, this quote, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make his path straight. This passage had come to be seen by some Jews, particularly the Essenes at Qumran. They thought it of it as connected to the redemption of Israel from their covenant punishment. So they saw in here kind of a prophecy about how one day God will redeem them from the slavery of the Romans and he'll redeem them from their covenant punishment. So that's a really interesting uh, connection here. All of this is coming together. Let's unpack this even further because this is quite a famous quote and it's mentioned in all of the Gospels to some extent. So let's look at the first half of this. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness... Now, that's a metaphor, a Jewish metaphor, which carries this idea of a message being conveyed to the people, a voice cries in the wilderness. Well, Mark here tells his readers that this is a prophecy, and it finds its fulfillment in John the Baptist, who literally did cry out in the wilderness. So, in the time of Isaiah, it was just a metaphor, a voice cries in the wilderness, it means there's a message. But here, Mark perceives it's literally fulfilled in quite a literal way in John the Baptist. And the second half is prepare a way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, in the time of Isaiah, when this prophecy was originally given, if the people knew that a king was coming, they would literally prepare a road for them. They would make sure the road was straight. They would make sure the area was tidy for the arrival of the king. It's kind of like putting out a red carpet. They wanted to make sure that the place looked good for the arrival of the king. Mark here indicates that this prophecy, prepare a way for the Lord and make his path straight, although it had a metaphorical meaning, uh, probably when Isaiah pronounced it, it finds it's a literal fulfillment in John, who's telling the Jews how to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, this image of preparing your land before the king arrives was applied to God, as in prepare yourself for the arrival of God. And here in the New Testament, Mark and the other gospel authors apply to Jesus. They say, prepare a way for the Messiah. We get to verse 4, and Mark says, And so it was that John the Baptist, or you can translate that John the Baptizer, this is the title that he'd come to be known by. People knew him as John the Baptist. And notice the language that Mark uses, and so it was that John the Baptist. So straight after he gives this prophecy from the Old Testament, Mark clearly indicates to his readers that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that. Now, in John's gospel, the fourth gospel, we learn that John the Baptist actually said these words from Isaiah about himself. So if you read the gospel of John in chapter one, John himself says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make his paths straight. So John the Baptist apparently knew his own identity in relation to this Isaiah prophecy. Mark says John the Baptist here appeared in the wilderness. So this is, of course, a fulfillment of the previous passage, a voice cries in the wilderness. Mark is highlighting that John is literally the fulfillment of that. Now, in Jewish tradition, the wilderness was typically the place of testing and repentance. So Mark, uh, John the Baptist, probably deliberately chose the wilderness as his place to preach. We know from the other Gospels that he's actually in the wilderness area on the border between Judea and Perea. So if you look at a map of Israel at this time, Judea is where Jerusalem is, and sort of the state or the region of Israel just to the east of Judea was Perea. So John the Baptist is preaching in Perea, which is a wilderness area. The specific town he preached in is called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And in fact, archaeologists have now found the place where very close to where John did his baptizing. You can go to the river there and see 
the site that we think he did the baptism on. And it's quite amazing to go there to Israel to see where Jesus was probably baptized. Now, interestingly, the place where John chooses to baptize here at Bethany beyond the Jordan, it's quite close to a place called Qumran, which is where the Essenes lived who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Many scholars have pointed out that there's some aspects of John the Baptist in both the way he dresses and his sort of the way he presents himself and his message are very similar to the Essenes. And on top of that, John the Baptist preaches right near where the Essenes live. So some scholars actually believe that John was originally an Essene who left the community. So it's a really interesting theory. And this is particularly unpacked in a book called Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls by John Bergsma, if you're interested in this theory. And Mark here says that John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's a lot we can say here. John the Baptist is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice what's required in order for the forgiveness of sins, according to John the Baptist. Repentance. It's clearly, that's what Mark says, is John the Baptist's baptism worked by telling people they need to repent if they want their sins forgiven. So apparently, according to John the Baptist's understanding here, his baptism doesn't forgive them. But he does say their repentance is what's required for the forgiveness of sin. So he tells people they need to repent if they want to be forgiven. And then he gets them to be baptized as sort of a symbolic representation of the fact that they have repented. Now, baptism itself was quite a common practice amongst the Jews at the time. John the Baptist was not the first person to baptize. The word baptizo, it just means immerse. And the Jews did have quite a few different ritual cleansings and ritual washings where they would immerse themselves. So they were familiar with this idea of uh, baptism, of cleansing by water. And particularly the Essenes who lived nearby, they did a lot of different kinds of baptisms for spiritual and physical cleansing. So what's unique about John the Baptist is not that he baptized, it's that his baptism involved repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a unique thing. Whereas the other baptisms in his time dealt primarily with ritual impurities. The Greek word here for repentance is metanoia. You've probably heard that word before, metanoia. And what that means is that it requires a complete change of mind. That's what repentance is in the New Testament, a complete change of direction. So John's message is repent, have a complete change of direction because the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist knows the Messiah is coming soon. He perceives that. In fact, if you look at the gospel of John, he's able to detect that the Messiah is very close. Now, many of the Jews in Jesus' time and in John the Baptist's time, they had false ideas about what the Messiah would be like. They did believe the Messiah was coming, but one of their beliefs was that When the Messiah comes, all the Jews would be automatically granted entrance into the kingdom just because they're Jews. That was sort of part of their their thinking. So John the Baptist tells the Jews here that actually that's not the case. If they want to be part of the kingdom, they have to repent. Now, this message attracted a lot of people. John the Baptist was very popular. Uh, Sometimes people in today's culture, of course, shy away from preaching this idea of repentance. But in the time of Jesus... John the Baptist's whole ministry was repentance, and he didn't push people away, he actually attracted people, and there's a lot of lessons we can learn from that, probably. Now, the place where John the Baptist baptized is the River Jordan, and for the Jews, that was a very famous site already where many healings and victories had occurred in the Old Testament. If you look at Joshua chapter 3, 2 Kings chapter 5, all of these significant things happened at the River Jordan. So by the time of John the Baptist, it had become a powerful symbol of hope and new life. So by John the Baptist calling people to come through through the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan, 
John is probably getting the people to deliberately reenact the Exodus story. He's trying to prepare them for the final Exodus from sin, which is about to happen. So it's a kind of a recommitting to the covenant. That's what he seems to be getting them to do, is he's getting them to realize the kingdom of God is coming soon and getting them to realize that they need to repent if they want to be a part of it. So, and then he gets them to recommit to the covenant by doing a symbolic baptism. It's quite a large river, the River Jordan, in the time of John the Baptist. Not anymore, but in the time of John it was. And so it would be suitable for baptizing large numbers of people. We know that John the Baptist actually had disciples as well, and they probably assisted with the baptism. Verse 5, all Judea and all the people of Jerusalem made their way to him. This is a big statement. Here Mark tells us that a whole lot of people from Judea, in fact he says all of Judea, is coming to John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist is about 20 miles away. They had to travel 20 miles in a hot wilderness to get out to see him. So he's obviously very popular. Bethany beyond the Jordan was actually also located on a major travel highway. If you look at a map, where he baptizes is literally right on a highway. So some scholars have said that you can say that literally the whole Roman Empire is coming to John the Baptist. They're passing by as he's baptizing people. It's quite an amazing image, actually. And Mark, he says, and as they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, they confessed their sins. We often forget that as John baptized the people, they confessed their sins. That's what Mark says here. They didn't just think about their sins. They literally confessed their sins, apparently, to John the Baptist. So here we already have hints here the confession is a key element of repentance. And this is obviously picked up later in the Catholic sacrament of confession. So people are confessing their sins to John. We sometimes forget this. Now, John's baptism doesn't take away sins, and John the Baptist himself knows that, but it is preparing them for the Messiah's baptism, which would take away sins. This whole dispute about is John the Baptist's baptism valid, it's actually taken up in the book of Acts, because By the time of the book of Acts, several people are still following John the Baptist and they think that that's good enough. But the apostles clarify with believers that John's baptism is not sufficient for salvation. Jesus' baptism is, but John the Baptist's baptism does not in itself bring about salvation. Verse 6, Mark says, John wore a garment of camel skin, or you can translate that camel's hair. Now, garments of animal skin were the distinctive attire of Old Testament prophets. If you look at Zechariah chapter 13, verse 4, it says that. John the Baptist clearly sees himself as a prophet. And in fact, Jesus later affirms that he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. In that famous verse where Jesus says, John the Baptist was the greatest Old Testament prophet. So John sees himself as a prophet. Now, most translations of the Bible here also have another phrase, which says, he had a leather girdle around his waist. That's not in today's lectionary translation. And I suspect that might just be a typo. That uh, the, lec- the people who put together this translation of the lectionary may have just forgotten to put that in. He had a leather girdle around his waist. Now, that's pretty simple clothing, but it is strange for a desert dweller. If you're a desert dweller, you'd probably want to wear more than that. By mentioning John's clothes, Mark wants his readers to recognize John's connection with Elijah because Elijah wore something very similar in his own preaching. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah basically wore the same thing, a leather girdle around his waist. This is significant because the Jews were expecting Elijah to return just before the Messianic kingdom began. Remember, in Malachi chapter 3, it prophesies that God will send Elijah as a messenger before the kingdom of God happens. That's also mentioned in Sirach chapter 48 verse 10. So there was this Jewish hope that Elijah would return before the great coming of the kingdom. 
We also know that before Elijah was taken up to heaven, and by the way, he was taken up to heaven at the River Jordan, interestingly, 2 Kings chapter 6. But before he did that, he passed on his mantle to Elisha. Some scholars think that there's literally a spiritual mantle, kind of a spiritual thing that gets passed on, uh, that passed from Elijah to Elisha. And then later, that same mantle was passed to John the Baptist. In fact, the Catechism talks about this in a place how spiritual personalities almost, or spiritual authority can be passed from one person to another. Now, the Essenes themselves wore something similar to this, so this might be further evidence that John the Baptist was at one point an Essene. And then he, Mark tells us he lived on locusts and wild honey. There's a few explanations for this. This might seem strange to us, but locusts were one of a few clean insects that God permitted the Israelites to eat. Most insects they weren't allowed to eat, but they could eat locusts if you look at Leviticus 11 verse 22. So maybe John the Baptist is just picking the one insect he can eat. This indicates that John is faithful to the Torah. He takes the Old Testament seriously. We know that on top of eating these weird foods, locusts and wild honey, John the Baptist also regularly fasted and encouraged other people to fast. If you look at chapter 2 verse 18... Uh, There, John the Baptist encourages people to fast, so that's clearly part of his diet as well. Now, there's another interesting aspect to this. Some scholars who think that John the Baptist may have been an Essene point out that the Essenes had a rule that if you left the community, you could only eat natural, pure food, not prepared food. So that was part of the rule, is that the Essenes would say when you sign up, if you ever leave our community... As a sign of your vow, you can only eat natural, pure food and not prepared food. So maybe that's an explanation of why John the Baptist uh, goes about eating the way he does. Verse 7, in the course of his preaching, or a better translation of this would be he preached. So this is implying he continually says this, not just once, but continually. He says, someone is following me, someone who is more powerful than I am. A better translation there might be, after me comes he who is mightier than I Now, we know from later in the Gospels that many people believe that John the Baptist literally was the Messiah. So, John is continually telling his disciples and those who are following him, he continually says, on the contrary, I'm not the Messiah, I'm just preparing the way for the Messiah. So, John is emphasizing to the crowd that if you think I'm good, well, then the true Messiah is coming soon, so be prepared for him. Interestingly, the word mightier, which John the Baptist says here, one is coming who is mightier than I, Mightier is typically only used of God, if you look at Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 and Psalm 24 verse 8. So, maybe here Mark is hinting that he understands Jesus to be God. There's all these interesting things in this in these early verses of Mark that you may not consider. And then John continues to speak. He says, I'm not fit to kneel down and undo the strap of his sandals. Now, in that culture, the most demeaning task a servant could do was touch his master's feet. That was not a very pleasant thing to do. But John the Baptist says that he's not worthy even to do that. He's not worthy even to do the most menial, basic of tasks uh, for Jesus. He's not, he's not worthy even to touch the dirtiest part of his body, in a sense. Verse 8, John the Baptist says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us the complete version of this phrase, which is, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, when John here says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, John is not trying to imply that the Messiah will not use water. In fact, it wouldn't really make a lot of sense to say he's going to have a baptism that doesn't involve water. 
What he's saying is that the Messiah will impart something that he can't. He'll impart the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, he knows that. John the Baptist has obviously been given some revelations from God here to know all this stuff. He knows that Jesus' baptism will be a supernatural baptism in which God himself will be imparted, unlike John's baptisms and all other Jewish baptisms. All of those are only shadows of Jesus' baptism. And we know that the Spirit was fully imparted at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 to 18 is when the, the Spirit is fully poured out. Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 to 27 in the Old Testament is one of several passages which links the outpouring of Spirit with water. Joel chapter 3 does this as well, and Zechariah 12 verse 10. All of these Old Testament phrases promise that one day God will pour out his Spirit in the last days. And that pour out language sort of has connotations of water. So the Old Testament does hint that one day the Holy Spirit will kind of be brought to people in a water form, which is interesting. And on top of that, those prophecies talk about how uh, the Spirit will be poured out so that God's people can respond to him perfectly and experience his blessings. This particular prophecy of John the Baptist, where John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's repeated several times in the New Testament. All four Gospels mention this quote, which is quite significant because there's not many things which appear in all four Gospels, but this quote of John the Baptist does. And in fact, Jesus himself repeats it later in Acts chapter 1 verse 5, where Jesus promises that that spirit will be poured out at Pentecost, basically. So that's the end of today's text. It's a longer one, but I hope you appreciate the way we've dug into the scripture here. Uh, There's a whole lot of richness here at the start of Mark's gospel. If you want to hear the next section, which is verses 7 to 11 of chapter 1, you can hear that on the Sunday after Epiphany in year B. So the Sunday after Epiphany in year B. Let's now turn to the Catechism. What does the Catholic Church teach we can learn from this passage? Paragraph 422, this is in the section about how God has sent his Son. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God has visited his people. He has fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham and his descendants. He acted far beyond all expectation. He has sent his own beloved son. So that's quite a beautiful paragraph from the Catechism. It quotes directly from Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Paragraph 515, this is about how Christ's whole life is a ministry. The Gospels were written by men who were among the first to have faith and wanted to share it with others. Having known in faith who Jesus is, they could see and make others see the traces of his mystery in all his earthly life. From the swaddling clothes of his birth to the vinegar of his passion and the shroud of his resurrection, everything in Jesus' life was a sign of this mystery. His deeds, miracles, and words all revealed that in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. His humanity appeared as a sacrament, that is, the sign and instrument of his divinity and of the salvation he brings. What was visible in his earthly life leads to the invisible mystery of his divine sonship and redemptive mission. Another quite amazing paragraph there about how Christ's physical life tells us about God's own spirit And all of the mysteries, particularly early in his life, reveal something about God's plan of salvation, including John the Baptist here. And it mentions specifically how the Gospels were written by men who have tried to make these mysteries explicit to those who have faith. 
That's the end of today's episode. I hope you learned something new. This is a unique podcast. It's the only one out there like this, where every single day we go through verse by verse from a Catholic perspective, looking at the gospel reading of the day. And if you believe you've benefited from this and you want other people to hear about what we do in this podcast, please share it with them. It's the best way, in fact, really the only way for the podcast to grow. And also prayerfully consider becoming a Patreon supporter of the ministry so that We can do more things. We can do more commentaries on other books of the Bible, help other people encounter the word of God, get the message out there. So please take a look at the show notes to get access to the Patreon page and all of the exclusives that are available to you that way. Thanks and hopefully we'll see you again tomorrow.